At this point, every information portal is saturated with mindfulness content. But this show is a unique, unusual, curious take on mindfulness. Some of what you hear will be completely new to you. Let's dive in and take a look at the nature of the aware mind. I invite you to deepen your awareness so that you may be liberated and inspired. I'm Sarah Vallely, professional coach. I help people overcome anxiety, heal from past trauma, improve their relationships, and maintain better work-life balance. Brene Brown, she has a PhD in social work. She conducts research on shame, vulnerability, and leadership, and she teaches at the University of Houston. She hosts two podcasts and is the author of six books, including The Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong, Braving the Wilderness, Dare to Lead, and the one that we're going to talk about today, Atlas of the Heart. I give this book four stars out of five. I really enjoyed it. The only reason that maybe I'm not giving it five is there are some areas of the book where I think that maybe she could have gone into a little bit more detail about some of the emotions that she's talking about in this book. This book is basically her covering 87 human emotions. Some of them, I think she could have gone into a little bit more detail, but there's 87 of them. She probably (laughs) didn't have enough book space to really cover everything. But Brene Brown also released a TED Talk in 2010, which I think probably helped launch her career. And that TED Talk is one of the five most viewed TED Talks. She also has a Netflix special that I watched when it came out a few years ago. And her first name legally is Cassandra. So that's something I learned that I didn't know about when I was researching this. little uh, trivia there. Yeah. And I think the reason that people quote her so much is she really takes a step outside of the norm. You know, she's not one to be completely lost in academia and just goes along with what everybody else has been saying for the last, you know, 20 years. She really does kind of take that step outside of the norm and expresses some things in some ways that most of us haven't heard of before in academia. This book, Atlas of the Heart, Brene Brown covers 87 emotions. I am totally obsessed with emotions charts. There's one that's really famous called the feeling wheel is divided by seven core emotions. It has three tiers and it lists 136 emotions. I created my own emotional chart. I call it the emotional clusters. It's divided by cause, what causes our emotions. So I have one section that emotions are caused by our own thinking, another section our emotions are caused by our fight or flight responses. Another section, our emotions caused by trauma triggers. My emotions chart includes 306 emotions and mental states. And Brene Brown has her own emotions chart. It includes the 87 human emotions and experiences that she referenced in the book. And her chart is divided into categories by situation which I think is fascinating. I haven't seen this before. So for example, the situation of when we compare ourselves to other people, the situation of when we fall apart, 
when we are searching for connection as another situation. So uh, it's really fascinating. And that is available online for free. If you just Google 87 Human Emotions and Experiences, it's a two-page PDF. I'll also link the PDF in the show notes. Brene's research shows that the majority of us can only name three emotions while we are experiencing the emotion. Sadness, anger, and happiness. I'm guessing that maybe the fourth, if she went to a fourth, might have been fear. I think more and more of us are getting better at identifying as we're in fear that we are in fear. Let's talk about for a moment why mindfulness is so important when it comes to emotions. For me and the work that I do with clients and when I'm teaching, mindfulness is so important is because if we can lean into a certain set of emotions, we can heal our trauma. So being aware of these certain emotions and then creating space for those emotions involves a lot of mindfulness. And um, some examples there would be abandonment and betrayal. Those are emotions that we don't want to just stuff away. We don't want to suppress them. We just really want to create space for them and allow ourselves to heal through them. Also, awareness of emotions is so important because if we are aware of this other set of emotions, we can anticipate experiences such as panic attacks. So an example here would be overwhelm. And these are these emotions that are triggered by by our nervous system. And also we can use awareness of another set of emotions uh, to identify the need to become more vulnerable with ourselves and to also identify if we're in overthinking, if we're overthinking things. So some of those emotions could be anger or frustration. And so that brings up such an important point, the vocabulary, the language. So then we can take a look at why is emotional language so important in a mindfulness practice? And I just see this over and over with students and clients that as soon as they start really learning this emotional language and what that means is looking at these charts and looking at these different emotions and really becoming familiar and comfortable with all these different words that name our different emotions, that people are able to somehow magically identify their emotions better when they come up. They can become more mindful. Learning this vocabulary helps them become more mindful. I'd love to read about linguistics and mindfulness. Like, what is the connection? It's fascinating. I think there's a sense of empowerment that people have when they can name their emotion because they say, okay, I know this emotion is abandonment, for example. And so they feel empowered because at least they really know what's happening. And then as they do more and more work around being mindful of these emotions and naming them, then they can start seeing patterns, these patterns of the same emotion, maybe returning and coming back. And then also getting better at using mindfulness to, to help heal that emotion or de-escalate yourself. And so you see those patterns and you have these tools for, for feeling better. She does mention mindfulness in the book a few times, which I loved, but she's not a mindfulness teacher. Uh, you can tell that it's not her expertise. Kind of just being mindful of the emotions happening and not necessarily getting triggered by it or, or taking on as much is not really her stance. What she brings to the table is she talks about the emotions and then she offers advice 
on what to do when you're feeling that emotion. I think that's a real value in what she shares. And of course, she has that background in vulnerability and shame. So sometimes, you know, that advice has to do with, you know, how can you be more vulnerable with the emotion, which I think aligns well with mindfulness. And also, how can you feel this emotion without going into shame? But she makes some really good points about anxiety and worry that I wanted to share. She says that anxiety happens when we can't control the things we think we can control. I'll say that again. She says that anxiety happens when we can't control the things we think we can control. And she advises us not to confuse anxiety for control. Wow. I mean, that's so simple, but so true, right? If you really break it down. I mean, I think the overall idea here is that we have anxiety and we forget that there are things that we just can't control. So can we lower our anxiety by reminding ourselves there's just some things we just need to surrender to, embrace that uncertainty, right? Be okay with the fact that we don't know what's going to happen or we don't have to be responsible for what happens. Another thing that she says is that people who worry think that worrying helps the situation. It generally doesn't. So just a little reminder to yourself next time you notice you are worrying, the worrying part may not be helping. And she also suggests try labeling anxiety excitement and see if it changes your experience. Something else that Brene suggests if we are in worry is to take a moment and ask ourselves, is this situation that we're worried about going to last for the next five minutes? Like, will it be over in five minutes? Is it going to last for the next five hours? Or is it going to last for the next five days or the next five months or five years? I did try this a few days ago. I was worried about something and I asked myself that question and I realized, oh, you know, by the end of the today, this actually isn't even going to be an issue anymore. And just knowing that reduced my worry and my anxiety about it. So that one does work, kind of like a reality check. She has some ideas about shame and perfectionism that she also includes in this book, Atlas of the Heart. She says, if you want to find out what you have shame about, complete the following sentence. It's really important to me that people don't perceive me as blank. And then whatever you fill that blank in with, you supposedly have some shame about that. So for me, one of my blanks would be mentally unstable. So it's really important to me that people don't perceive me as mentally unstable. And I think this is because in my 20s, I had three nervous breakdowns. I had a drinking problem. I, you know, I had, I was a a real mess. 30s, I started to, to get better. I still had to deal with my anxiety disorder, but I was I was getting better. And, and then mindfulness eventually really helped even me out altogether. But because I went through that experience, I do still have some shame about that. So that's um, interesting to see that. Another something I might put in that blank is weak. It's important to me that people don't perceive me as weak. So there's maybe some shame about being vulnerable. Uh, Brene Brown also talks about perfectionism. She says in the book that perfectionism is always externally based. Uh, This is one of my points of contention with this book. I do not believe this is true. She's stating that if you have perfectionism, that it's driven always 
by your concern about how other people will perceive you. So I have several clients who struggle with perfectionism, and this is not true for all my clients. I definitely have clients who their perfectionism is driven internally. It's themselves putting the pressure on themselves. Um, they, they'll admit that, you know, they say, I'm the one putting the pressure on myself. There's, there's nobody else that's doing it. And I'm not concerned about the other people. But uh, so anyway, I, that was something I, I disagreed with. Um, she also said that in order to heal shame, you have to talk about it with others. This is something that I also disagree with. And I know that this is out there a lot. A lot of people talk about how healing it is to talk about shame. And yes, talking about your shame normalizes it. Uh, you get that witnessed, you're witnessed, and, and it, it is very healing. But I disagree because I believe that using mindfulness and self-compassion um, is a way to heal through your shame on your own. That uh, You do not need to involve other people. I'm not saying that involving other people is not highly um, awesome. <laughs> uh, I think that the work that I do one-on-one -on -one with people, I think that the fact that I'm there witnessing them and, and there for them to talk to, I think is really helpful. But uh, I've healed a lot of my own shame with my own mindfulness and self-compassion practice. And Brene Brown also talks about self-worth. And she says, it is dangerous to put your self-worth in the hands of others. Wow, this is such a good reminder for everybody. I think a lot of us tend to, especially women, I'd, I'd like to say, tend to consider our worth based on how other people perceive us. That's not true, <laughs> right? Right. It's it's um, about something bigger. It's it's about really self acceptance and and all of that. And in that same category of self-worth, she talks about boundaries and that boundaries help you love yourself and someone else at the same time. So the reason boundaries are so important is they help you love yourself and someone else at the same time. She just gives some great advice. And the advice that she gave about boundaries is that to really be clear to yourself about what your boundaries are and to be clear to other people about what your boundaries are, that what we can do is state what is okay and what is not okay. I might say to myself or to another person, it's okay for you to share your own experiences of doing something you did wrong and what you learned from it, but it's not okay to criticize my actions. So you're being really clear, like this is what I'm okay with this is what I'm not okay with. And I think that's such a great way to be clear about what your boundaries are, especially for the other people hearing you, because you might say, oh, well, I'm not okay with you criticizing my actions, but then it's kind of like not enough information. Another example would be, I have kids, say I'm dating. So I might say to that person that I'm dating, it's okay to let me know when one of my kids is misbehaving, but it's not okay to discipline my kids. So that this is okay, this is not okay. Yeah, and I think this method of stating what's okay and what's not okay would be so useful in a professional setting for people in management to use, people who are running companies, you know, to let employees know this is appropriate, this is not appropriate. I think that just gives so much more context, makes it so much easier to follow and understand. And also under this category of self-worth, Brene introduces a new term, a new term to me. She uses this term self-secure, which she defines as 
accepting of our imperfections. So we are a self-secure person if we are accepting of our imperfections. And I, I love that. I love that term. Yeah. I, I mean, this is definitely, you know, the work that I do with my clients, supporting them to move in this direction of of accepting of their imperfections and definitely so helpful for people who have some perfectionist tendencies. It's just that whole idea that we're human and uh, it's human to to make mistakes. And she does have a section that she talks about empathy. And I didn't take any notes on this section except for my point of contention that I had with her. And I think that's because I I struggle with teachers, spiritual teachers, mindfulness teachers, mental health professionals who talk about empathy in a way that makes it sound like we can be empathetic on command, that we can control when we are empathetic. And the, when she covered empathy in Atlas of the Heart, in that section, she did insinuate that we had some control over when we're empathetic and when we're not. And I completely disagree with that. I consider empathy to be like love or pain. Love is something that we can't control when we feel it, when we're going to feel it, and when we're not. Pain, you know, it just kind of comes or it's not there. We can't really control it. And I put empathy in that scenario. And, and empathy means to feel someone else's pain. So we, we can't command ourselves to feel someone else's pain. There are lots of things that you can control, that, that you can have command over. One of them is to validate someone's emotions or validate their experience. We can prompt ourselves to do that. And it can be extremely supportive and compassionate and helpful when relating to someone that we're with. And we can also command ourselves to have a compassionate mindset. We can specifically think in a way that is compassionate. For example, we can specifically look at someone and look at them and not want that person to devalue themselves in any way, not to feel less worthy because of their circumstances. And that can guide um, what we might say or what we might do or what we might think. But then I think there's also an element of compassion that we don't command that's more on that heart level that just kind of comes when it comes and it doesn't when it doesn't. I agree that we can do certain practices that develop our empathy and then we can become in general a more empathetic person that we're more likely to maybe automatically go into that state. But I don't think that we can just in any given moment, just say, okay, I'm going to be empathetic now because of A, B, and C is happening. I, I, I don't believe that. And I think it does a disservice to people to think that they can because it, it wastes a lot of time because if what's going to happen is people just aren't going to automatically be empathetic in certain situations. But if they have knowledge and training in validation practices and certain compassion practices, then they can definitely be really a good support for a person in, in any situation. The neuroscience behind empathy shows that the area in the brain that gets activated when we feel emotional pain or physical pain is the same area of the brain that's activated when we feel empathy. So it's that pain center. Now, compassion, when we feel compassion, it's a different area of the brain that gets activated. So I think sometimes 
those emotions are confused. And I will say that there's a research term called cognitive empathy, and that means that you're thinking in an empathetic way. But mm. to me, that's not really empathy. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm a purist, and so uh, my purest view on empathy is empathy truly is when you feel another person's pain. And I'm an empath, and I work with a lot of empaths, and sometimes that's not healthy for us. Mm. You know, sometimes being too empathetic is actually not healthy. As we're, we're actually feeling that pain. And so I like to guide people who are empaths to use more validation and compassion. It uses that other part of the brain. It's not, it doesn't put as much stress on our system. It, it creates a, a good boundary, but at the same time, you're being very supportive and very compassionate with the person that you're with. Read the book, Atlas of the Heart. It's a wonderful book. I actually train people to be mindfulness coaches. I'm going to let all of my coaches in training know that this is such an amazing book and they should read it. And, and anyone who's interested in understanding their emotions better. Brene also shares some pitfalls that we get into when we are relating to others. We might say, everything's fine. We might say this to ourselves. We might say this to someone else instead of really acknowledging our hurt or our pain or our fear. And, and she lists uh, several examples of these pitfalls. So, so read the book to learn more. The Aware Mind Podcast is a TSD mindfulness production. Please check out our show notes for upcoming events and links to additional resources. Please visit our website at tsdmind.org. That is T as in tame, S as in soothe, D as in dwell, mind as in mindfulness.org. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at tsd underscore mindfulness. 